Welcome to the Chameleons Podcast. In this episode, I met with Michael Morgenstern, film director and founder CEO of This Is Definitely Real, a company that makes alternate reality cinema that blurs the lines between reality and fiction. Our storytelling skills helps us make sense of the real and the unreal, and is something that is deeply ingrained in us. Some claims such skills are even foundational to human experiences and human knowledge. Stories can be communicated through different means and forms, and this conversation focuses on how modern media and the use of AI can accelerate both the real and the fake in ways never seen before. We discussed this, as well as Michael's new immersive film project that addresses how fake narratives can be created and understood. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Imak Samrana, and this is The Chameleon's Podcast. Welcome to The Chameleon's Podcast. Today, we have a very interesting guest with us, Michael Morgenstern. He's a film director and a culture hacker. He's passionate about disinformation and its implications for our lives and for society as a whole. Welcome to this podcast, Michael. Thank you, Mac. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you could. Uh, it was very surprising. <laughs> I just recently was introduced to your work and I have to say it looks super interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what you've been doing. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Yes. Um, so I'm a film director. I've been making movies since I was about five years old. Mm. I would make little TikToks in my parents' <laughs> house with my brother and sister and graduated college and decided that film was something that I wanted to go ahead and do. Done some work with NGOs mm. in the past, working in refugee camps mm. and directed several films. So right now I'm working on a film called Dare My Best Friend to Ruin My Life. And it's about two kids who try to ruin each other's lives over the internet. And we call it like the fight club of the post-truth era. So it, it's a movie that looks like a video game and pulls you into a web of dueling narratives where you're trying to figure out what's real. Mm. And our plan is to release this next year alongside a interactive media campaign where you blur the lines between reality and fiction creating a disinformation event that people can tell is a disinformation event to start a conversation about disinformation. Mm. And because we need new stories about mm. the world that we live in today mm. that help us understand and talk about what's going on. Mm. I also worked a few years ago as chief of staff to Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. And I have a strong interest in tech policy, in the impact of tech on our minds, in how divisions form and how those can be exacerbated by disinformation. Mm. Yeah, and I live in the United States, so it's interesting being here in Oslo, being reminded of the perspective of the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it sounds like you have a lot of interests. I'm really curious about this disinformation project that you're working on now with the film. Tell a bit more about what kind of narrative tricks you're using yeah well i'll start with why mm. uh the internet feels like the tower of babel now where there's lots of different subgroups siloed away that have different negative ideas about each other mm. uh, and those differences just get wider and wider and wider and the stereotypes that people have the essentialization of other groups and social media mm. and the internet 
allow people to exacerbate those differences and to really create these culture wars and put fuel onto these fires. Mm. When I look at what AI is going to do to that in the coming years, it's a tsunami that's just starting to come on shore. So it's important to me that we're pulling out all the stops and having a conversation about this, that we're sounding the alarm, that we're giving people tools to understand even what's going on, Mm. to be able to look a year, two years, three years into the future at what our lives might be like so we can start preparing for that. Mm. So that's a lot of the reason why I'm doing this project. The goal of our project is to provide an experiential experience of what it's like to be inside a disinformation campaign but also to tell that story through metaphor because it's incredibly triggering to people by the nature of Mm -hmm. these narratives to explain how disinformation is working with something like abortion or something like transgender rights because we are so wired to get triggered. Mm. A lot of what we try to do is design something where you can see yourself in the good people or the bad people. You can see the other groups in the good people or the bad people. So if you're a Republican, you can say, well, the bad guys are Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you can say the bad guys are Republicans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it lets us talk about these fundamental dynamics Mm. of identity and culture and tribalism. So how do you think AI will exaggerate what we're already used to from from social media? To start, you know, GPT-4 is out right now, and Mm. it's really good. And you can bet that something better will be out in a few months and something better in a few months after that. So what happens if you took a thousand public WhatsApp groups where there were links and you inserted three bots into each of them. And those bots were undetectable. What if them just imagine that they're good enough to not be noticed? And then you slowly start running programs on each of these groups. Now you can change the narrative in a, in a really huge way. And so a lot of the internet is anonymous or pseudo-anonymous. So you can't tell if the person you're talking to is real or not. You can only infer based on your own guesses uh, or like whether you've met them in person. So something like Twitter is really susceptible to this. Reddit is really susceptible to this. And, you know, we used to have this problem of disinformation where it's like, I don't know if this person is lying to me. I don't know if CNN is telling the truth. But now the problem we're having is, I don't know if this is a real person. Mm -hmm. And then what happens when fake people outnumber real people 100 to 1 Mm -hmm. on these platforms? And spam detection is good, but it only goes so far because, you know, if you've got an arms race, eventually it's going to look close enough to the real thing that it's going to be really hard to protect against. So I see a lot of these challenges coming and I see the internet breaking in a lot of ways. And then beyond that, I like to use this analogy of, um, so, uh, so AlphaGo was an AI program built to beat humans at Go. And when it succeeded at beating humans, a lot of the Go players pointed out that there was this whole space of moves that it was doing that they didn't hadn't even thought of, that humans had not really discovered these possible moves. Mm. And so it changed the way people thought about Go because it was, in some sense, smarter than us. It was able to look at the whole space of moves and, and figure out which ones might be the best. And so I think human manipulation is going to be like that. I think that we're going to continue to see new ways that humans can be manipulated. Mm. Like our understanding of the world, the word tree or the word chair, there's nothing really underlying it. We've heard that word a thousand times and we've associated it with a series of images and feelings and and that's all that we have. So if I say like, I grew up near aspen trees or I grew up near a brook or I grew up near a lake, some of those options might cause you specifically to trust me more or Mm -hmm. to trust me less. And I believe that we have deep associations with all of these different words. And if you can map that, which humans, we're not good enough. We can kind of understand this about each other, but even 
mm. a partner you've been with for 40 years, you don't have that deep map of what everything means to them in specificity. And I think when AI is able to do that, there's a pretty good chance they'll be able to just play us like a piano. Okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's scary, <laughs> actually. So whatever they learn about us, they can use to manipulate and basically create false dialogues. Yeah. What is happening today is just by talking with a lot of people with the same opinions, we get reinforcement of those opinions. But if you scale it up like AI can do, that manipulation of opinion will just multiply. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and narrative is really all we have. You know, when we look around, we're really seeing narratives and stories. It's like you and I are here because our friend Nicole introduced us and we <laughs> trust Nicole and I'm here for a conference. And it's like, there's all these things that yeah. are stories, Yeah, you know, they're kind of related to real life, but there are stories. And what happens when someone's able to just scramble that? It's like the very thing that we rely on to just have a grounding, to mm. be like, where am I and why am I here? <laughs> and these are like intrinsically simplifications, but we need them. Mm. And that's the way we operate. It's going to be a little while before all this happens. But in AI space, that means somewhere between a year and 10 years, who knows? <laughs> it's incredible. When we see something happening outside, a ball falls down from a table, it's really built into us to see cause and effect, linear cause and effect. It's hardwired in us. And when we see people talking to each other, we create cause and effect narratives. Like It's all of these layers mm-hmm. that we have put on top of them. And what I'm hearing when you're saying this is that you could hijack that, like on any layer deep down. This is sort of a field, creating disinformation or creating weaponized narratives that's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Often what people do is they look for the one image that sums up why something is terrible, why something's unfair, you know, and often those are the Pulitzer Prize winning images, Mm -hmm. a giant person with the gun next to the child holding their hand up Mm -hmm. or something like that. But it takes a while to figure out exactly what image. It takes a while to stage that image. Now imagine there's an AI who can throw out 100 perfect images that'll get everyone really upset, but also <laughs> tell this narrative in the way that you wanted to tell it. How does that change the game? And it changes it a lot. It does. Um, even if the image is fake, you know, and I think the near future, mid future, I suspect everything's going to seem like a lot of noise. It'll just be white noise and we'll be doing stuff and we won't know why we're doing it because we'll just be pulled in so many different directions. Do you think people will turn off the tech? I think people may have to. And I think that that's, to me, that's not a terrible future. You know, like we might just turn off our phones. And there also might be a set of policies or set of ways of operating in the world. You're already starting to see this, where there's certain ways of operating in the world that cause you to be less reactive. And you might be able to tell when you walk in a room right away if people are doing that or not. And mm. we might split into two societies of people who are like, I follow this protocol so that I don't scream at people when they walk in the room. Other people are like, no way, I have to scream at the people. They're the enemies. <laughs> yeah, so I mm. think turning it off, rebuilding the internet based on trust, based on protecting ourselves from some of this. Mm. Mm. I don't want to accelerate any of this, but I think that if it is coming, which it is, us learning how this stuff works, but then also being able to take the reins ourselves mm. is really powerful. Mm. So like I'm an advocate for using your own narr- ability to control a narrative, doing so ethically. So like you can create fake characters, tell everyone that they're fake, and they will show us the way to, you know, your version of a brighter future. Mm. Mm. Uh, because I think if mm. it's inevitable in the post-truth world, character is a tool. 
All of these things are tools. So we can have these conversations in lots of different and new ways. Mm. Maybe the most optimistic thing I think is like, well, it's the singularity. So we don't know what's going to be on the other side. <laughs> and maybe that it'll be great. <laughs> Just a completely new world yeah. where everything's upside down and we wouldn't even know what's real or not. And it wouldn't matter. Yeah, and we're remarkably adaptable. Like one positive outcome of this might be that we will have to become less reactive. And we walk around with our triggers basically written on our bodies. Like you can tell what you might say that would really hurt someone's feelings. And <laughs> those are our vulnerabilities. Mm. And so if if someone can say that you are fat or someone can say you, you've never succeeded in life or something, you know, the, those things that are our triggers, we're probably going to be hearing that sort of thing from AI all the time. It's possible. And, and so we might just, it might just all come out in the open. And that's exciting to me. Wow. Is it possible that if you have AI systems that have a really good representation, not only of our objective world, but really our subjective worlds, like individual uh, triggers, mm -hmm. uh, representing something underlying that's deeper, mm -hmm. having that connection between a certain behavior and a certain emotional reality for that person. Mm -hmm. It's even stronger than advertisement and how it's traditionally been done a more analog approach where you just have to figure out a way to manipulate based on triggering emotions. So here we're talking about a system that might be able to understand on a much deeper level how different people are responding to things mm -hmm. because we shared everything. Yeah. Well, and, and it's written on our faces, I think. Uh, yes. And I think we'll find that to a, an AI that's sophisticated enough, it's all very simple. How many of these patterns are there? It's 300 maybe, mm. you know, and how many common ones? 10. If I don't treat you well, you'll leave me. Like how many mm. people feel that way on some level? And so, and then there's a lot of, you know, subdivisions of those mm. patterns. But I imagine that just a little bit of look into people's conversations and y you can see like someone who's very good at reading body language, mm. how much they can tell about you in just a second. And there's a lot, and, but what if you have all of someone's data and you're watching them for a long time or you're China and you've been watching them walk around the world and you know all of their habits and their patterns mm. And now you can run a test by texting 10,000 people and seeing how each of them react. You know, it's it uh, gets good fast. It gets really good fast. And imagine just constantly monitoring where you're looking. Mm -hmm. Just that attentional detector. Yeah. If I'm looking somewhere, focusing and looking at something, you can see that in the eyes. Someone is actually focused at what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. And if you have that data you know what's on their mind. Mm -hmm. Next step is to understand how they feel about it. Yeah. And then the specifics of what they're thinking. If you know a lot about that person and you have different behavioral indicators, mm -hmm. it's, uh, I don't know how hard it is. And I think it's, to me, it's not really about AI. It's not just about AI. Mm -hmm. You know, the AI problems are human problems. Mm -hmm and disinformation is a human problem. That's what our movie is about, is this fundamental phenomenon where somebody else gets turned into other, and they get turned into bad. And turning somebody else into bad has to do with me needing to be good. Mm. And then them being bad justifies a lot of things. Mm. We start lumping them into other categories, and then we pattern match everything into those. And before we know it, we're able to hate. And to me, it's a tale as old as time. Yeah. You know, this is thousands, probably millions of years old, mm. this separation of self and other. It's like that quote, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every person. And 
in the other, we see a reflection of ourselves. And, you know, if there ever is some sort of expansion in consciousness that leads us to stop wars, it'll be related to that. That's so interesting. This project, it's beautiful to hear that it has this information democracy aspect to it. If people understand how they might be tricked into believing something's real when it's not, giving them experiences with how something might look real that's not, so they can see how this was happening. Right. And how much of it relates to identity, too? In what way? Uh, like, it's so much about belonging and identity. And I think a big craving that people have in this world today, and Americans for sure, is to belong. And if you believe that that person's evil with us, you belong. Yeah. And, and hatred is something that really binds people, that mm -hmm. makes them feel like they're a part of something. Yeah. I feel that a lot when I see people watching Fox News and getting riled up. A lot of the social fabric in America has been eroded. People don't have a lot of friends and they don't have a lot of community. And so getting angry while watching television makes you feel like you're a part of something. Mm. Mm. Wow. Is there a reason why you are interested in that? Have you seen that a lot, that people are bonding over hate? I think that's yeah, that was a conclusion that I came to later. My parents are quite conservative and the rest of my family. And when I was 14, I came out as gay and that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. And since then, you know, I think politics has gotten even more divisive. Mm -hmm. And so we've had that experience occasionally of just being on totally opposite sides of issues. Uh, and I think we navigate it really well. You know, we, mm -hmm. we do it with a lot of respect for each other. I heard recently, actually, that something like one in five Americans between 16 and 20 are in no contact with their families. What? That's yeah. And so incredible. there's, yeah, there's these cultural divides. And then this is like a virulent story within these narratives is that you have to be no contact with the enemy, you know, that talking to somebody about something is... Mm part of the problem you're becoming part of the problem so these narratives have within them these memes of separation divisiveness and if you're not trying to undermine the other then you don't really believe in your cause mm, um, yes yeah you know. so you have to cut people off also yeah or and there's it's very tricky because i think i agree with that to some degree there's, there's fucking racists in America. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to scream at them. And there's people who don't have a similar understanding of the world to I do, that I do think that, you know, I don't want them to have platforms. And that that is hard. You look at the type of disinformation that Russia was putting out, and it looks very similar to people's authentic arguments. Oh, if Russia was trying to destroy this conversation right now, they would have said exactly the thing you said. Mm -hmm. And I know you believe that, and it's I believe it too. But believing passionately in something and wanting to argue about it, especially when it's done online, can yeah. increase divides. Yeah. And so if you're looking at it from just the perspective of increasing or decreasing divides, mm -hmm. the people digging their feet in the ground is increasing divides. So it's like, I'm not one to tell anybody not to dig their feet in the ground, no. but more to observe that's the choice that is being made and that it is quite possible it can have that impact. Yes, because one thing is not being willing to listen to different opinions versus actually meeting opinions that can't be accepted. Mm -hmm. There's a line <laughs> in many issues like where you can listen to it, but you also don't have to mm -hmm. because it might not be healthy. Mm -hmm. 
in America, there seems to be a just a more how can I say it? It's a different climate there when it comes to uh, to media. What stories are being told? People are really truly listening to different medias. Yeah. Some people might only listen to Fox News, while others are only listening to CNN, for mm-hmm. instance. I think the right way to do it is to separate the most charitable version of someone's message, the best possible mm. version. It's like you know the term steel manning. Yes. Yeah, yes. Like, do you like what, what do you feel about steel? Yeah, manning? it's it's really important to steel man the other person's <laughs> argument and understand that if somebody's talking about if Black Lives Matter is talking about racial dynamics, mm. they're pointing to a history, like a gruesome history of colonization and slavery and the impact that that's having today. Uh, and then a lot of the time, people in the opposition group will point to the specific words that specific people are saying and will say, well, they're doing it this way. And did you hear what they said? You know, and, and to me, that's taking the most extreme version of something that a, a human said, and they weren't saying it to you, they were saying it online probably to their mm-hmm. supporters in a totally different context, and throwing out the entire message instead of grievances. And I see that with people who voted for Trump, mega mm-hmm. people, and there's a lot of, you know, perspectives there that I don't agree with. So Steel Manning is trying to interpret it in a manner that's understanding it. Yeah, and Steel Manning, I think, is getting the best possible version of an argument. Yeah. You can ask somebody. You yeah. can say, well, what's made you angry? What are you afraid of? Why did you vote for Donald Trump? What kind of world do you wish for in your personal world? What is wrong? Mm-hmm. We can ask these questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like maybe, we, yeah, we shouldn't be paternalistic and seeing the answers that I'm just coming from. It's like, I don't know who to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a bit about diplomacy in a way. Mm-hmm. Cultural diplomatic skills to be able to talk to different people at the same time, be able to be clear and specific about where the lines are. So your work is really about storytelling and you're using media to tell stories. And I'm wondering, what do you think about how AI and advanced technology might change storytelling for us? The actual stories that are being told and the future of storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's Uh, a great question. I can give some ideas, but it's hard to look very far in the future yes. <laughs> today. What generative AI seems to do is mm. regurgitate existing things, and it'll twist them around however you request them to. But a lot of the narratives that are coming out look like the narratives that have come before. You ask it to write a short story. It's got a million short stories brain, and then it'll write something similar to that. So I think the first impact we'll see is just a proliferation of content. There's going to be so much content. And even I hear from people who are writing books, they're like, thank God ChatGPT came out. I'm writing my book a lot faster. Uh, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. so, oh, my God. Yeah. It's co-authored. going to be so many books coming out next so year. So many books, right. And then you have the AI to synthesize it for you. So there's going to be this explosion of content. You know, we're going to see pretty quickly a lot of things written completely by AIs. You know, there's some arguments right now in the writer's strike the writers want Hollywood to promise not to use AI writing. And unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. The cat is going to be too far out of the bag. Netflix wants to be able to use whatever tools at its disposal. I don't think that they want to get rid of writers, but they certainly want to have um, they want to have options. And that's a mm-hmm. big thing to promise away. And then there's the, you know, the awful capitalist arguments that if you do that, you're going to get outcompeted by someone else, which I think is mm-hmm. true in this case. Um, mm-hmm. Because what will come next is personalization. And I think that 
even if AI writers are not as good as human writers at compelling stories, they'll be a, a million times better at human writers at creating 100,000 versions of the same story tailored to all these different people. Yeah. And so your ability to put your family into a drama, to have you and your friends hanging out with these people, to have the characters available over DMs if you want to ask them questions, mm. to have a, a whole season of a thing that is about childhood trauma in a specific way that's incorporating your childhood trauma and mm. is healing for you. You know, there's there's so many opportunities for like immediately custom tailored generative art. And so I think the idea of a single piece of content will go away. You know, there's one version of this movie, which also just puts us further into our silos, you know, that we haven't mm. even seen the same movie. Mm. Or uh, we're seeing the same tale, but it's, um, we don't know the variability. We don't know other versions of that. It's very narrow. Yeah. In some ways, it is cool and you can create. For our project, we called it alternate reality cinema or arc. Mm. And that's because I thought of it as a giant arc. So our main story plays out over the internet over a period of 10 days. And then we have what we call creator projects and they plug into that story. Mm. And so we can support, you know, a thousand different creators creating content that fits into those story beats. But the world is all the same. And so there's new opportunities now. I think we're going to be moving away from auteur storytelling. We've already moved a lot away from that where there's this one person, usually a white male, who like <laughs> thinks of everything. Every single detail is up mm. to this person and you're handed this fully finished package. And I think that now it's like we can create that because we can create parts of the videos we can create. Um, and so I think, you know, stories with a protagonist of we are the new kinds of stories. Wow. You know, and you look at like GameStop and Wall Street Bets. And that was just, that was an alternate reality story with the protagonist of we where mm. the, the, the story was we are taking down the financial system. And, and that was really compelling to be a part of. Yeah. And so that's what we envision is a world where it's so easy to make content that mm. making content isn't where you put the story, but the story is the emergent crowd dynamics. The story is the container that you put the content in. The story is the ability to shape that container. Um, and also eventually the story is the impact that you can have, you mm. know, because it'll merge with social movements, I think, where by doing storytelling, we're dreaming our reality into existence. Oh my God. It's <laughs> <laughs> mind blowing. I'm, I'm wow. So what you're saying here is really uh, is is really blowing my mind because you're saying that we might not even be as interested in the content. I mean, it's really seeing us ourselves in the story. So what if you have kind of a movie generator or a TV show generator that can because they have all your data, they have like pictures of you, they know how you move, they know how you talk, they know even what your history is, mm -hmm. everything, like they have all of it, like a complete database of you, complete analysis of all the objective and subjective knowledge there is about you. And then they have all these templates that are so flexible, because mm -hmm. the AI can go in any direction, really, like a template uh, of a TV show. And then you can choose, like, do you want to be the hero in this story or do you want to be the uh, victim? And you choose and it starts and it's you there. Mm -hmm. You're the star or the show. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think people are starting to do this sort of thing. You know, I've seen a lot of projects using LLMs. There's one that some friends of mine at the AI Objectives Institute are doing called Talk to the City. Yeah, it synthesizes what people are saying inside a city 
and then it splits it up by different perspectives and it allows you to talk to people with those perspectives. Wow. And it's, you know, I think that as these tools get better, as it gets more sophisticated, the level of nuance that you'd be able to have, you know, as a way of querying all the data or, or trying to understand something. And then I think as you go into a more physical space or a more like screen space where you're watching something happen, the narrative technology might be there, but then the technology to make it compelling and interesting. Mm. People like stuff that's sexy and fun and interesting, mm. you know, mm. and that's one reason why I used to want to do social impact documentaries. And then I saw that a lot of the people who were watching them, New York City, Lincoln Center, they were people who really cared, who wanted to feel. And it was a very small group of people. <laughs> and some have broken yeah. through. And more recently, a lot of documentaries have broken through. Mm. But I think there needs to be something sexy about it. Mm. There needs to be something that drives people, that compels them. You know, reading statistics about death rates is it doesn't get us off our butts versus yeah. feeling something. Actually experiencing self-experience almost. It's almost vulgar. The personalization that's possible mm -hmm. with AI. Yeah. It's kind. Of, it's fascinating because it's uh, self-boosting. It's interesting. All the opportunities for feeding the self. Yeah. And it's it's scary. And if I if I could hit pause on it all, I probably would. I think I would because I think you have all these beautiful things, and you're like, but but how do you know they're showing you anything true? How do you know they're not manipulating you? Like, how do you trust any of these narrative projects? Um, yeah, it's very scary. It's like the Turing test uh, constantly. Like you have to really question yeah. everything all the time to be sure. But I do think that what you're doing, your project is so admirable because it's giving experiences and tools to people and knowledge to people about how easily they can be manipulated uh, and experiences with being manipulated, mm -hmm. understanding where it could go wrong and where they might, if they're in a situation like this, again, what they should be looking out for. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure that the tech industry will develop these detectors, like detecting what's AI generated versus not. Mm -hmm. But people don't have those tools, and I'm not sure it's going to be available to everyone. Yeah, and I think the detectors are going to be of limited use. In what? Yeah. Well, you can detect a deep fake now, but you can feed the output of a detector into a deep fake generator and then try to train it to make something that doesn't hit the detector. Yeah. And <laughs> it's an arms race where one side gets better, the other side gets better. But where do you end up with a video that looks just like real life? Or maybe to put it more accurately, with a video or a chatbot that is within the bounds of what real life could look like. Because mm. mm. already real people get caught in captures all the time because they can't figure out how to fill the captcha <laughs> and and so i think you'll see an example of that where like once the ai gets too good now the ai is better than humans at captures and so captures just don't work no. i'm surprised they're still around and, and so you'll see that with deep fake videos mm. for sure uh and then the other problem is that you know you, you see like donald trump will tweet something that is obviously edited that comes from a sketchy source and so even if you have pipelines where you can trust an image someone says, well, that pipeline is a, is a rightist bent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a biased pipeline and it's made by those people. Mm -hmm. And look at the people who funded them, you know, or oh, you just believe mess. it. It's a mess. <laughs> because people believe what they want to mm -hmm. believe. And just because there's a little red square around it that says it's, you know, real, it, it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to believe it. No. Yeah. No. So I think detectors are helpful for the next few years. Yeah, but not beyond. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what do we do then? How can we detect this over time? When it gets better and better. We, we can't. In the future, we can't. And we build society around that. And I think one thing that'll happen, 150 plus group chats will break. You just can't have one. If you, if you don't know every single person in a chat, someone comes in, and how do you know they're a bot or not? Reddit will break. Mm. Uh, if you have 1.5 million people on a subreddit, mm. how do you know who's a bot and who's not? Do you think new, um, like, pure internets will develop? Yeah. Like, like, like you have blockchain and, and Web3. Do you think alternative platforms where you can make sure that everyone who is on this platform has gone through a certain... Yeah, I think so. Mm. And I think, like, we've met in person now. Mm. So we could exchange some key or we could call each other and say, okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's you and add each other. And I think we'll have an internet where you can only see those people. Nobody else can touch you. And that helps you figure out at least which of your friends are real. But it doesn't help you figure out what's going on in the world. You create silos again. Yeah, and so I think the only optimistic, hopeful thing I can see for news is going back to the old system where we have a few trusted sources of news. And, you know, the New York Times, CNN, Fox News, Al Jazeera, BBC, it's their job to figure yeah. out, did it actually happen? Verify they, everything they're publishing. Yeah. And even be much stricter with sources, Spend have a whole department that's like truth department. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to go back to this old system and... Mm. That used to be the system where we just, all we knew what was on TV. And then cell phone cameras came out and the internet happened. And mm -hmm. we realized that there was a lot of things those people were lying to us about. And now we see a cell phone picture as more true than what's on television. And CNN is the last people to find out about news. And we're going to have to go back because we cannot trust a cell phone picture from a random Twitter account. And, and there's ways of verification for sure. And maybe we'll figure out some clever things. But I also think that we like recently it's picture that was generated on like Midjourney or something. It was just an AI picture of the Pentagon on fire. Did yeah, you see I that? saw that. Yes. Or I heard it. We'll need someone whose job it is to tell us whether or not the Pentagon is on fire. Yeah. Like this is not true. Yeah. And then we'll need some sort of clever ways to keep those people accountable. Like if you're an institution like the New York Times, you have less incentive to lie about yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Maybe CNN catches you and now you're fighting and then everyone figures out which one it really was. And this is the problem with the non-anonymity or, or the problem with weak social ties where mm -hmm. you aren't as connected to people is that reputation isn't a factor. Yeah. You know, reputation is a way to hold someone accountable to telling the truth. It's fascinating because... If you look at history, the development of the internet, it started with all these resources like Wikipedia, where anyone can contribute. It's open. It's more democratic. Different voices can be heard and share their knowledge so that it's not this authority that might be a biased person. But then all of information ended up being like that, where mm -hmm. anyone can providing be a part of the conversation be a, a source mm -hmm. and the traditional media they don't have the same power anymore which is good in a way so we had media that often had a take on their stories but sometimes you wished they didn't have a, a monopoly on news but then we have all these news sources these individual sources where we are not uh, controlling or have any control over right. the, the the credentials. Well, and I have a theory on this. Mm -hmm. I think that the more a platform 
lifts up minority voices, mm. the more prone it is to disinformation. In what way? And I, I think that's a universal law, and it mm. sucks. I would love to be proven wrong. Because if a platform allows a smaller group of people to achieve leverage because their message is interesting and get their message out to a broader group of people, you know, like going viral, intrinsically that means that a small group of people can have an outsized effect in disinformation. And so it means, it, it, you know, something where a small movement like the Sunrise Movement with climate change, a group of 100 people working together can change the world because their message is so important and they're like, please share. And they say that in there and it gets shared. The same way, if you just optimize a message to be as angry as possible, if you optimize it to fit in with existing narratives, it'll also get shared. And so there's sort of a temperature to the network where how much is it amplifying um, that affects both of those two things together, I think. That's yeah, really sad. Yeah. <laughs> because you want those voices to be heard. Yeah. Uh, you want to uh, create platforms where that is open for all. Yeah. Especially now in the U.S. with companies controlling so much of government, you know, you go back to company media and who's talking about prison reform? Who's, I mean, already now in China, who's talking about the Uyghurs? You know, I'm not excited about a return to a few sources of truth. Um, you know, there's other options like verification of images. You can try to do that. But if you, you know, if you can hack the camera and feed something into its sensor, you can fake an image that way, but maybe you can't fake the timestamp and that's enough. You also, most of those implementations require that you're trusting Adobe or Canon or something, which mm. people would tend to trust those, but there's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird to me actually, like mm. I assume that companies have been working on it, but I've asked people at tech companies, are you working on trusted image pipelines and haven't ever gotten anyone to say yes. Wow. Yeah, for like five years where this was clearly in the front view mirror, and maybe they are. And I know it's a hard problem, but I would have really hoped that, you know, Canon would have a solution by now. Yes, yes. Or at least best practices. I Yeah, and I, I haven't heard of anything. That's so fascinating. I mean, whatever information there is, anything can be manipulated over time. Mm -hmm. Probably. There is a way to do that. Yeah. If someone wanted to. Yeah, I mean, They'll figure if you, out a way. you know, put a photo in front of a camera and take a picture of it, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's other mm. digital equivalents of mm. that. Mm. Yeah, that, that mm. it's really, it's hard. I'm thinking of like a new character, like based on like Harry Potter's universe, like truth seekers or something like that. Like, <laughs> what really happened? <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe we'll have like people who are truth seekers in the news. Uh, well, that's if we have a magic incantation so that people cannot tell lies. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have them go check it. And they're, it's impossible for them to lie. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine. But what if it's a machine? Then we need to have a different algorithm for them. Yeah, but what if the truth seeker show is just a way for those people to get their narratives into society by lying? <laughs> yeah. How can you prove that that's not true? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a mess. No matter how many measures you take to adjust something, the other side would adjust as well. And then the game is on. So in the end, the fake is upped by something more real. Yeah. Then the real is upped by something more fake. And in the end, it's this hyper reality mm -hmm. that's kind of so hyper that it's just, I don't know. Well, and you you know what's true in your world. You know what's true for yourself, what your feelings are true, what's true for the people around you. But I think that 
we may end up spending a lot more time in that world, which would be mm. really nice. The analog world. Yeah. The real world. The real world, yeah. Mm. And, you know, I do see a split of society for sure. Do you? Like I people th- who would go in and out? Like, and I like, think, yeah, people who decide to not live in this mm. insane world. And then other people who are like, oh my God, I can be anyone I want. And that there's a total mm. untethering versus tethering mm. back, maybe. Yeah, a sense of freedom. It's like, again, Harry Potter. It sounds like I'm super fan. But <laughs> some people might have the opportunity to walk in and out of that world where everyone is out there. And mm-hmm. then once in a while, go into this fantasy world or vice versa. Do you think these alternative portals for interacting digitally where everyone's verified, do you think there will be distributed where only people with economical means will be there like recreate class no i think that there will be ways to do it and i think that creating trust graphs is Mm. really helpful and it's like like i know you're a real person Mm. i have some ideas about like i think you have integrity and you mean what you say most of the time i'm willing to sign off on Mm. that and so somebody else appears on the internet and it's like oh this person is totally unknown to you yeah. or like they have a lot of complaints against them and mm. so i think that we'll see that kind of filtering much in the same way the real world works it you is know, you, same it, thing yeah, yeah yeah you take technology away completely mm. and you know what's in front of you and then you hear a little bit about what's right next to that mm. and then you hear something the king sends a proclamation and you have no <laughs> idea if it's true or not <laughs> no. and you're, it doesn't really even affect your life yeah. um yeah. And, and so yeah, Return to the Dark Ages. <laughs> oh my God, it, it's so interesting. And I find it interesting also, suddenly something occurs, like a crisis, a war, or COVID. In the future, when we have this new technology, how will a crisis look like? And mm-hmm. what would happen during COVID if mm-hmm. we had like AGI then? These super computers and algorithms and deep fakes then. Or if the US goes to war again mm-hmm. somewhere. And we'll have it... You know, we will have all that soon. Mm. I think 2024 election is, it's going to be bad in that sense. But I also don't think some of the worst outcomes will be realized yet. Like, I think we'll have deep fakes, but will we have 100,000 weaponized deep fakes? Will we have total breakdown of what's real and what's not? I don't think so by 2024. I think 2028 we will. Why 2028? Um, it's just going to take a little longer yeah, than that, yeah. you know, to totally lose tether with reality. <laughs> like 2024 is a year and a half away. Yeah. So, so we took a pause on our project in 2020 and I took a break because mm. I was really burnt out and I went to Bali. Uh, and it was really fascinating after having studied disinformation for years to go from San Francisco, which was a place where people were very concerned about COVID. Everyone was masking transmissions rates were really low and everyone wanted to keep them there to bali where it was a lot of hippies a lot of world travelers and nobody believed in vaccines or covid yeah i didn't know that wow Uh, among the expats oh so the local population the locals believed in covid but the information there was really uh it was really whack (laughs) like you could get in trouble for not wearing a mask on a motorbike but once you go into a bar it was fine just uh, because police wanted to pull you over and extract some money. It was, it was very, <laughs> which caused you to lose respect for the whole operation pretty mm. quickly. But the expats, mm. you know, believed in a grand government conspiracy. Some people believed COVID was made up. And one of the factors was that it hadn't really hit Bali hard. Mm. And so they're seeing this happen from really far away. 
I got really excited and I would play a game of who can I convince that COVID's real and what arguments would convince them. Because never, no one believed it was real? Yeah, some people did or that it was just the flu. Uh, mm. Some people believed that if you just drank enough fruit juice and stayed out in the sun, it would be fine. I was told that peyote cures COVID. There's a lot of a lot of beliefs. One thing I learned for sure is that the best way to convince someone is to listen. And that was what I did is I just asked people, why do you believe this? And then I explained why I believed what I believed and what my sources were. And I got really curious about like where they got their information and why they believe it. Um, and that opened people's minds up. It opened people's hearts up. They got more interested in talking about it. I, there was the craziest experience I had. I was at a party and I was wearing a mask and somebody next to me asked me to take off the mask. And he said, masks are triggering to me because oh. they reminded him of all the things he didn't like about COVID. And I did take off the mask and this person next to me was laughing and she was like, COVID, what is that? That's not even a real thing. It's a total lie. It's just made up. And I turned to her and I, I said, I have some friends who are medical students and doctors and they work in hospitals and they've told me that about 100 people a week die from drowning. And so they're watching this. And these are my close friends that I went to mm. school with. So I have to believe that what they said is true. Mm. And so I think, you know, I think it's definitely a thing that's happening. And she looked at me and she was like, yeah, I had it. I had it a year ago and I was stuck in my room and I felt my lungs filling up with fluid and I actually thought I could have died. Wow. And wow. this spun me for days. I was like, what the fuck just happened? You totally denied COVID and then admitted that you almost died from it. Mm. And the only conclusion I could come to is she wasn't thinking about what she believed. She was thinking about what would get a laugh and what would get her socially accepted. And it was a fascinating way to think about truth. You can disregard what's true or not if doing it gives you a sense of belonging. Yeah. And you can do that maybe even... She must have been conscious of it. Maybe not. Maybe not. No. I, Maybe I, I, not. I think we're all doing it, you know, and I think we're all doing it to varying degrees. Mm. And there's things that we're willing. <laughs> oh, another story. <laughs> I uh, I was at the gym in COVID and there was this really hot guy. He was just <laughs> at the gym. so hot. And I'd seen him around <laughs> and I really wanted to talk to him. And I finally like I said hi to him and we started talking and he started going off about what the West is doing with this giant disinformation campaign, pretending that COVID was real. And I was just like, uh-huh. Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you and inside, I was like, I found my line. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Whoa. And you, you didn't say anything. No, I didn't like, say anything. Not going to destroy this like, moment. Tell me more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm. How do you, why do you believe that? Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think we do so too. Yeah. And sometimes we listen. And sometimes we agree. Mm -hmm. And this to me is... A fallacy in the way some people look at AI is that the, what is the purpose of communication? Is it necessarily to achieve discourse and understand ideas? Are we seeking acceptance? Are we seeking security? Are we seeking power? And are we saying what will get us those? My teacher, Rick Smith, likes to talk about how early on in life, often we d decide that we have to make a choice between our integrity and our truth mm. and getting acceptance. Mm. And we learn to sacrifice our own integrity in order to get acceptance. And a lot of his work is about 
Oh. Coming back to our integrity and accepting each other through that in a deeper form of acceptance. Because how accepted can you really be if you're not in integrity? Mm, mm. Um, yeah, so. it's accepting a diminished version of you, mm-hmm. which is not acceptance, really. Yeah. That's the f- funny social game, the acceptance game, mm-hmm. where you're changing yourself to be accepted, but... You long for acceptance of who you really are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Wow, I have to check out his work. He teaches workshops in Bali. He's teaching one in Colorado soon. I don't know if he writes, but mm. he should. Yeah, yeah he, he should. should. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so fascinating. So in the process of making this movie, what was the process like to get kind of the project going? Because this is a very hot topic. At the same time, I can imagine that it's not what everyone's walking around thinking about. Mm-hmm. And maybe also some people are not so interested in talking about it. Yeah. So I've had about 3,000 meetings <laughs> trying to either raise money or get support for this movie. Um, wow. And if anyone is listening to this thinking, oh, that sounds cool. I want to make a movie. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> 3,000? Yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of those are phone calls. I started in 2016 when I optioned the rights to the story, because it was originally a story on Reddit, mm-hmm. and some conversations with Tristan Harris and thinking about some of his work and seeing where tech and disinformation were going, also hearing about Russia's influence on the election and watching how that had hijacked some of this social media stuff. I thought that it was really important to create a story about that. The other thing is I'm part of an immersive theater collective, so we create immersive theater art. And I also interned in 2010 or so with Ted Hope, who is a film producer, and he talked a lot about transmedia narrative stories that go outside of the feature film and the impending death of the feature film. And so there's Mm. a big conversation about what's next in media. And so I smushed all these things together. The other thing is the original story was supposed to, people were supposed to pretend that it was real Mm. on Reddit. So I said, well, what if we did this, but with videos, Mm. with social media, what if we did this about disinformation and also like use these tools of disinformation to extend a movie. And then I also have some background in tech. And so I saw that we could, you know, create some interactivity, follow users around the thing, take some things about growth marketing and mm. put that into there. And most of the reaction when I would pitch it was confusion, you know, and I really started working on it in earnest in 2018. So I spent a few years working on the script. Do I want to step into this? And actually right before I worked on it, where I decided to go full time, I was looking back at my career. I was like, all right, I've been spending 10 years in film. I don't have a lot to show for it. Mm. Uh, you know, I think, I think I might quit and go do something else because all my friends in tech are getting tons of respect and money for Mm. doing this work. And it's really, film is hard. And so I just decided to do this one last thing, which has been years and Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I would just, I pitched to anyone who would listen. Mm. Some people thought it was cool. I think a lot of people were confused why I cared so much about disinformation and deep fakes the mashup of these different things, you know, they would say, well, why don't you just make it as a regular film? Or why are you combining this thing with that thing? When I would say, like, we're creating an interactive media experience that'll inoculate people against disinformation, Mm -hmm. using the tools of disinformation. And like, it's just been interesting tracking that the pitch has like, it's gotten tighter for sure, but it hasn't really changed. Mm -hmm. But the response to it, it went from confusion to like, I don't get it. You seem confused, like you have a lot of things you're mashing together that don't really make sense to like, oh, wow, that's okay. That's really cool. To now I pitch it and people are like, 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really, it's frustrating. You yeah. know, it's certainly frustrating. And it's so much of my energy has been spent on fundraising. Mm. And seeing, you know, seeing now that turn with people getting excited about the project. Mm. I'm like, oh, but we could have used your help years ago. Yeah. And I think that's part of that is just intrinsic to the struggle of an artist that if you're not proven, it's really hard, you it know, is. and and generally, like, I've got this advice many times, and I totally should have taken it is do something smaller. <laughs> if I had done something within my means, then I probably could have done mm. something bigger and done something bigger. Um, but I was really stubborn about it. And I just like said, no, it's gonna be this giant thing. And so eventually, you know, the first few years worked to raise money and then raised enough money to shoot the movie. And I remember we had enough money to bring a crew to Sundance. We pretended that we were the Russians who stole the 2016 election. So we went to Sundance and my good friend, Sean McCabe, may he rest in peace. He played Anatoly Sokolov, who was this Russian billionaire, <laughs> the head of the IRA, Internet Research Agency, oh who God. came over to Sundance because the disinformation machine ran out of content. So he was trying to get more content. Oh. And we put these Soviet propaganda posters up on the walls. We had a videographer. We <laughs> had a bunch of fake parties. And part of this was like, we'll take the same thing that Russians did, supposedly. You pick your Facebook group, you figure out what they're interested in, and then you create content that looks like what they're interested mm -hmm. in that pulls you in. Mm. So we made these fake events that looked like really fun events. And mm. these posters were like, we give you $10 million for your movie. <laughs> and so it's like, you don't really believe it because it doesn't make any sense. But like, I'll show up. <laughs> yeah. I was like, raffle prize, $1 million. Yes. Um, and so then we used the signups for those events as a honeypot. Uh, and we started texting people. And then we brought them into an alternate reality game where we had them chasing around different clues and stuff. Wow. And then we were documenting it. And it was funny because that actually got us a meeting with a real Russian billionaire's company, <laughs> uh, Boslevs, who created Searching, oh, um, which wow. is also like a screen movie. And they just emailed us saying they liked what we were doing. And then we met them. And Anatoly was in character for the meeting, talking about how we we're going to destroy the whole world with disinformation. <laughs> and like, do you want to join? Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. But and this was in the U.S.? This was in the U.S. Yeah. And a big thing that I learned there is I had struggled so hard when we didn't have any money mm. to get my friends interested in participating, to get them interested in doing something. Mm. You know, people were interested in coming for an hour or something, but nobody wanted to, like, put their foot into it. And the moment it was a real thing, everyone wanted to be part of it. Yeah. And that was a big lesson. I was like, I'm taking three people to Sundance. I think we paid like $8,000. That was our budget for Sundance. But first I thought, well, the best way to do this is to convince a bunch of my friends to do this for free. And I totally turned on that is like convince someone to fund it and pay people. And first of all, it's just ethically right. And mm. second of all, people work a lot better when they're being paid. Yeah. We have, So we've had 450 people in the credits or so, mm. probably 500 by this point. Wow. Um, and, and we've, well, some of them are special thanks and all that, mm. but anyone who's done work, we've paid them for that. Life is so tough and people have bills to pay and a lot of people can squeeze stuff in just to be nice or to help. But when you give them, them an opportunity to actually focus on it, mm -hmm. um, you get a completely different content. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that idea. Yeah. To and, actually pay people... And maybe sometimes take an expense. Yeah, mm. buzz, excitement, mm. conversations. And almost every time that I am doing something where it's like, quote unquote, for fundraising, like mm. screenings of the film, or I think that was a big reason of coming to Oslo. And I'll, I'll kind of dread it and I'll be like, oh, I'm doing this, but I really want to be working on the movie. Mm. And it's true. I really do want to be working on the movie. Yeah. And I think if I had my choice, we'd be well-funded and I'd be in the studio right now. Yes. And every time I do it, 
I get my head out of my ass and I see the rest of the world and talk to people like mm. you about this and realize I'm pretty glad that I'm getting pulled out into the world also. That's so true though. Yeah. Like kind of that journey of not being able to go like full speed mm-hmm. gives you time, a yeah. different time. Yeah. I mean, it's not the journey I would ask for, <laughs> no. but, but it does have the effect of uh, having to convince someone that they should fund your project mm. improves your project. Yeah. Does doing it 3,000 times improve it more than doing it 100 times? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm just so impressed. The endurance and the persistency that it takes mm-hmm. to so get anything like this uh, uh, up and running and just being able to start to work, not even like completing everything, but mm-hmm. that kind of endurance, like it's, it's a lot. How yeah, <laughs> and no, nobody should ever say that a movie is a bad movie. If a movie yeah. gets made, it is an extraordinary achievement. Yeah. It was really hard. Um, I'm very tired and I'm excited for it to be done. I'll say to people sometimes, like, people ask me, how are you? <laughs> and I'll say every day I wake up and I look at the news and I see all the things in our project happening and then... I talk to people and they're like, I'm so excited for your project. It's congratulations on this thing. And then I go to work and I feel like I'm in a prison of my own making. Yeah. You know, and we can see the light be- at the end of the tunnel. But making an indie film doesn't get easier because it's more relevant. It's still really hard. And right now, one of the struggles related to paying to people is we we have budget to finish the film, but not to pay all the people to work full time on it. And the cost of that to the speed at which we were able to work is just immeasurable. Yeah. I guess you could measure it, but it's a lot. And, and, you know, I dream of putting fuel on the fire and it's also like, there's nothing you can do that'll make a movie easy. So it's just, (laughs) you just go through and every day it's more finished than it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. And it's been so many lessons and you know, I took a break of about eight months and that was incredible. And then I took this break when I was working with Francis and I'm really excited to to finish this, take a little break and kind of really sit with who I've become in these years. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you have to change a lot probably. Yeah. Or, and still stay the same. Do you, have you always had this interest in what's true or not? Like reality versus... Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a thing that happens... And I, I like to think I'm way better at it now. But mm. when I was first starting is your mind calcifies around your project. You know, there's a, there's a vision of reality and this is what we're going to do with reality. And in order to succeed, you have to be so driven towards that one narrow framework and way of looking at the world. And I noticed that when I, when I took that break is it slowly started to relax around these stories that I had been telling myself and other people and settled into like, curiosity about the world again it's not just like hey i need you to hear my frame of reference because this is the project i'm doing and like here's why it's going to be so cool but it's like what what else is happening (laughs) and then coming back around to like okay yeah the things we were doing were quite relevant Mm -hmm. and we're going to keep doing those you know i would be interested in is there right is there a way to do something like this and start a company and keep that calcification from happening you know because you learn all the responses to every every poke at the way you're doing things to the point where they're just automatic. And as soon as it becomes automatic, you can replicate it maybe too easily. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that authentic connection to what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's auto. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a consequence too of just uh, 
just working too hard also. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think people, like I imagine Sam Altman is working 100-hour work weeks. At least. Yeah, and it's like, how do you <laughs> really look outside of your own framework yeah. when, when you're so nose to the grindstone? Did you see the hearing with the Senate? I saw a little bit of it. Yeah, I just watched it. And it was a bit different than, than the one with Facebook a few years ago. The atmosphere was so, so like everyone were friendly. And they all loved Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just calling him Sam. Yeah, but, yeah I know. Like I know him. They all love old Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Sam. But um, it was fascinating. I mean, I really do think that there are a lot of good intentions from companies. They really want to contribute to a better society, mm-hmm. give people tools that would make their lives easier, and eventually probably augment humans in some way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and at the same time... The dangers, for instance, of misinformation, of the threats to individual lives and societies is there. You mm-hmm. can't deny it. So I was watching this um, this hearing and I was thinking like, it doesn't matter what they're saying. The only good thing I thought was that out of this hearing, there would probably be a board, mm-hmm. a committee, or an overseeing agency in the U.S. for AI. Yeah. Probably. And the next step is, who are they going to bring on board? Will it be a farce or will it actually be something legit? Mm-hmm. That's going to be interesting. And the next level is like getting an international one. Gary Marcus was proposing that. Mm-hmm. He thought we needed something that's on an international level as well. All of this is good and all. And I'm so glad they're having the hearing. At the same time, I'm like, it's so God and polite. <laughs> like they're asking difficult questions, but they're also super fans yeah. of open AI or what they're doing. And I was sitting there and like, it's good to have a good diplomatic conversation. But I was, I was so shocked that it was that friendly. Well, and I, I think part of it is, I wonder, I don't know how much power the US government really has here. First of all, because it's really hard for the US government to agree. Andrew Yang once quoted someone to say, like, a problem is worth more unsolved than solved in uh, Washington. You know, the EU can agree on stuff. UK Parliament, they just passed their online safety bill. They can agree on stuff. Mm -hmm. But the US, it's like, how can you regulate if you can't agree? And then beyond that, how much money from tech companies is going into your wallets? And of course, when you see Facebook and Amazon calling for regulation, mm-hmm. OpenAI calling for regulation, like regulation helps the dominant players. Of um, course, it stops yeah. others from even starting. It's like in Norway, we say you're picking up the ladder so that no one else can climb it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I used to build web apps and like, I don't know how to implement GDPR. That looks hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to do that to just have website now (laughs) you do i don't know i think so yeah yeah with the accept cookies and all that stuff i'm sure there's wordpress plugins or whatever but it's still like you you make it harder for new entrants we can never get this done in a very fair way can we (laughs) yeah it's difficult there's there was a google memo internal memo where someone's saying open source is eating our lunch the challenge with ai is that you can only regulate big companies you can make things illegal. You can mm. make LLMs illegal. Mm. Um, but short of that, short of the criminalizing and the fear that you'll get caught, mm. you know, is some check. But if it's not, mm. you can run LLMs on cell phones now. Uh, we can expect that trend to continue to some mm. degree. Mm. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, it's just the Wild West. It's impossible to know. <laughs> it would be interesting. Like do, it, maybe we all will have kind of cabins without tech. Ten years from now, we will all be like, "I need to take a, a sabbatical." Well, Ted, Ted Kaczynski <laughs> just died. Hmm? Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Yeah, 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 he just died. Yeah, he just he died. Yeah, he he lived in a cabin in the woods. He did, and we'll, he had a <laughs> manifesto against technology. And he was saying that every time it advances, it controls us more. Which is true. Like yeah, he wasn't these, right. A lot of these people who are uh, obviously crazy. Right. <laughs> and well, and we're all to, yeah. crazy in a way. Like, well, we have the interesting uh, potential for craziness. Right. Uh, well, um, and it's just now it's not it's, an option as off much mm. to not have a smartphone. Mm. You know, everyone's on a WhatsApp group or a Signal group. And you're the one who's like, well, can you just call me if you need anything? You know, and people throw out an address and you're supposed to be able to get there. Every piece of technology at some point, the mm. adoption is so high that... You can't really opt out of it no, unless can. everyone does, which we might. I would also love to know more about L.A., how it is to live there and mm. your relationship with Silicon Valley. So talking, right, because yes. I was going to talk about that. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, first, the difference in dynamics between L.A. and San Francisco. It was very interesting. I was living in San Francisco, but I was commuting to L.A. Mm. because I grew up in Los Angeles and just had a hard time with the city. I didn't mm. like it very much. It can be a very isolating place. And the entertainment industry, there's a lot of people who are vying for very few spots and there's not a lot of money in the industry. And so it means there's these massive power and differentials. And if you're on the bottom, it just, for me, felt really bad to be like, I'm trying to be a director and yeah. have that wave of just like rejection and people being like, get in line. And some people are better at dealing with that than yeah. others. I was not. So I lived in San Francisco also because all my friends were there. I had a community there and I was really trying to make it work, living there and making a movie. So I'd come down to LA and the whole language that I would use to describe the project would change. Code switching between, you know, in the Bay Area, people cared a lot about a new technology, a game-changing way of looking at things, uh, a business model, how big the addressable market is. In LA, the first thing people say is, can you send me the script? <laughs> and part of that is that in LA, every movie has roughly the same business model. And so you're like, priors for how am I going to evaluate this movie are different. You know, in the Bay Area, you, this model is really important. Who's the audience? You know, like audiences, people who watch movies. Um, <laughs> it's not good enough. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can segment it more, but yeah. People you know. ask me, what's your audience for the podcast? I'm like, mm, I'm like, anyone interested in learning about what I want to learn about? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. That's not a good pitch. I know. You, you got it. It's helpfully and specific. It totally is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah and, and Los Angeles I think a lot of it comes out of the structure of LA, mm. which mm. is lots of people vying for a few positions that I think there's a scarcity mindset. You know, mm. movies have a lot of scarcity because you're trying to make them for as little as you can and you're trying to sell them for as much as you can. Whereas in tech, things are generally binary. They either succeed or fail, especially like VC mm. type investments. Can and we so, scale this or not? Right. And yeah. so if it's if you can make a dollar in tech, usually you can make a thousand dollars or a million dollars. Speed matters more, you know, just throwing fuel on the fire to try and get something out as fast as possible. There's a lot of things that in Silicon Valley are just accepted as the way the world works that are very, very unique to that environment. Do you like it? I think there's a lot of, going between the two, there's a lot of cool things about the Bay Area. There's an atmosphere of abundance. You know, there's a, there's a feeling that anyone can do anything. There's a feeling of empowerment. Mm. I think that's because there's a lot of money in power, because there's a lot of companies that have apps that reach a lot of people. But I think it's also engineers, you know, people are always looking for them. So people's talents are very appreciated. Mm. And if you have a talent, you get, you know, a well-paying job with good benefits and a lot of respect. 
Uh, whereas in LA, you can have talent and you'll get into the room and people will still treat you like shit. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is that there's a lot, my experience was that there was a lot of trauma in the entertainment industry. Trauma. Trauma. Yeah. And, and a lot of people talking shit to each other and coming up in the entertainment industry and getting treated really poorly. And then once they have power, turning back and treating people that way too. Right. So it's kind of like a reinforcement of trauma. Yeah. And there's this story, Rick Smith would call it like a radio station in LA. And that story is like, you're shit. You're never going to make it. You're a hack. You're going to have to trick someone into like supporting you. And so people will say that story to themselves. They'll say to each other. And it's a thing that um, you just feel there. Wow. And I think if you look at like ancestral trauma and the legacy of the trauma, my guess is it comes from the studio system. And it comes from back in the day when there were like three studios and 20 execs and a thousand beautiful women who have come there wanting to be actresses and they're like sexual dynamics and the power dynamics. Mm -hmm. And those dynamics are still at play in the sense that you have a few people running studios and they're Mm -hmm. making decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think what is changing is that people are growing up and coming of age. And a lot of the ways that people get into Hollywood now Mm -hmm. is they go to film school or something and then start making their own videos Mm -hmm. And the empowerment is much higher. You don't need anyone's permission to get on YouTube. So often by the time you're interacting with that studio system, you're already at a point where that system respects you. Yeah, because um, you already created uh, stuff. Yeah. You already are yeah. producing. And I think that that's one reason for this. Like, So in San Francisco, people love making intros. If the intro seems like it's good for both people... It's a social win for someone to make that intro. I, I love that. I have to say, I like uh, Nicole, our friend. Mm-hmm. Like Nicole. Uh, like Nicole. Nicole loves to make introductions. I think like she's really special when it comes to that. It's almost like she has an uh, intuition. Mm-hmm. Who do I introduce you to? Yeah. And in LA, people see introductions as spending a point. Mm. So people will spend years working for someone so that they can get that one point. So that at some point they can ask that person for something. And so if you say, hey, could you introduce me to your boss? They'll say like, I was going to ask them this other thing next month, so I can't. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is the scarcity mindset that comes from real scarcity. And mm-hmm. then in the Bay, you just never know if, and this was more true a while ago, but you never know if your intern next week is going to be like mm-hmm. on the cover of Forbes. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it makes it so that people actually do respect people who mm. seem in lower positions of power. And that is changing in Hollywood. But really, like the Hollywood mindset is, well, who the fuck are you? And if you're not connected to any A-list mm. actors, your movie's not going anywhere. Mm. Or if you come up through Sundance and there's this fascinating phenomenon, which is true in every industry, I think, mm. where no one will answer your calls. And then you get featured in something and everyone is calling you. Yeah. And then what I hear is what happens next is like two months later, no one will answer your calls. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You're like, you're, you have this window, this window. Right. And yeah. it's like, who is that? That's, oh, but that was last Sundance, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fascinating. Why are we operating like that? I had many experiences actually where, you know, the most interesting conversations happen sometimes in the most unexpected places and with most unexpected people mm-hmm. you sit down on a bench next to someone who might look like they live there mm-hmm. on that bench and then you start to talk and then that person is an emeritus from princeton or harvard and work with so-and-so person on that really seminal work mm-hmm back in the 70s or 80s, not believing someone 
could contribute because uh, you don't have any expectations of them. It's the saddest thing. Like you're closing the door for talent. Yeah. I think about that in terms of who do I end up mentoring or who do I end up being really willing to give advice to? Mm. What are the, those dynamics of like who gets to be in the room? Yeah. Who gets to be in the room? Yeah. I have a friend who runs the uh, Emmys page program, but they've, they've made it a diversity program that they, they bring in people with so much diversity and the, the goal is access. And it's like Hollywood's an industry where it's really hard to get access. Yeah. And where access means so much. I would like to be more intentional about who I who I support and how because it's really important. Yeah, it's super important. But it must be fascinating to travel in between LA and Silicon Valley and just get that kind of different mentality. Yeah, and I think it's changing. And I'm not sure quite how, but the Bay is very different than it was before COVID. In what ways? Well, a lot of tech companies moved out. Yeah. And so they're in Austin now? Or? <laughs> yeah, or people just moved out and so oh. they closed down their offices. Oh, they did? Some companies. And I think, yeah, Austin became more of a hub. Mm. There, there's definitely, yeah, there's a question of what will San Francisco become. You know, I think everyone's really excited about AI and my sense is that AI is going to employ a lot fewer people ultimately than, mm. than the whole tech sector did. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these AI startups, I think, are not going to be very long-lived. Oh, that's really s scary. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like how many AI startups are just making GPT calls? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a bust now and everyone's using it and everyone gets some users. Yeah. Perhaps even some subscribers. Right. And then better things will come along and mm -hmm. then yeah. you have to actually develop something new. Yes. I can't wait to see your movie. Um, and I was wondering, what do you hope people will get out of it? I think the role of art is more than anything to provide a mirror for us. Mm. And we will have some action items related to the campaign, but I don't think about this as like, if we can only get everyone to do X, I think that the role of this movie and the role of most art in general is to cut through some of the bullshit and help us see more deeply into something inside of ourselves. And so if people have that mirror reflection and are able to reason more clearly about what's happening and mm. are able to feel uh, some of the things that are harder to feel, I think that's the model of change for art. I, and that's what we want to do. I love that. That's beautiful. To provide a mirror. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily have an idea what changes to make. It's uh, empowerment. Yeah, I think so. It's really empowering. It's like, why don't you take a look at it from this perspective? You're doing that, but not telling them which perspective to have. Well, it has a perspective, but um, but not necessarily an answer. Yes. That's a difference, too, between Silicon Valley and L.A. Silicon Valley, people want answers. I think L.A. people want questions. Ah. Or people want explorations. Because stories are, just art lends itself to that. And... I think really good art is much more complex than a single answer. Yeah. It's an epistemic journey, looking, search for knowledge. It's multifaceted. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful answer to that question. The role of art is to provide a mirror. Yeah, that's the meaning of this movie. But I was wondering, just before we wrap up, what do you think the meaning of life is? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what does that <laughs> to mean? To you, like, what are you, why are we here? Why do you think you are here? I, or, except for, like, the evolutionary circumstances. I don't know. Mm. I think we definitely create our own meaning. And I think that we, you know, the world is creating its own meaning collectively. Mm -hmm. But I don't know the answer to that. That's really mysterious and complex to me. Mm. What do you think? I think I um, don't know either. It's so interesting that people have different, they're doing different things with their lives. Maybe they choose family over work or work or family or no family or family or like what, all these choices. And it ends up being your life. Mm -hmm. And in that way, yeah, you put activities and events into your life that repeat itself often, and that becomes life. But is it the meaning of life? Just like whatever we put in there specifically becomes the meaning of life, mm -hmm. regardless of whether that is something you want consciously. Yeah, and I, I would really say that we construct our own meaning for life, but I'm, you know, I'm wary of that because it, it sounds a little too nihilistic. But I think at the least we're empowered to create our own meaning. Mm. You know, that there might be deeper meanings there. It's not saying there is no God or there's nothing else going on, but so much of why we believe we're here is stuff that society has put into our minds that we can change. And I think that that is the, the, the story of a lot of, the work that I'm doing and the work that a lot of people are doing now is like humanity waking up to our own agency mm. and our own ability to collectively decide what's meaningful and important. And I think we're going to see a lot of threats to the things that we currently think are important to our, our status as producers for a capitalist world is under threat. And some people want to increase, you know, say, don't worry, we'll all have jobs. Yeah. You know, and there's a deeper question of like, We've been defining ourselves by our jobs because our society has asked us to do that for so long. Is that, you know, is that the meaning? Um, that's fascinating. Also, I think um, death and sex. Yeah. <laughs> that's really, it all comes down to that. We want to have sex and we don't want to die. And and really like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's my other answer. That's so you look at anything and it all boils down to one of those two. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's, and like, you know what? That's, that's an answer from 10 years ago that I would say, I think connection mm. and love and, and meaning are all things that drive us too. And I, I don't mm. think connection's the same as sex and death. So no, that's it's different. not that simple. It's not that simple, but it is about, uh, yeah. So death and sex is kind of, <laughs> if we, that's the cynical like, version. <laughs> that's a very cynical version. It's very, um, it's very outcome oriented. Mm-hmm. I feel the connection and human uh, connection and really enjoying being in the presence of someone that you feel this, there's a safe, inspiring, loving or whatever kind of atmosphere here. It's fueling me with good stuff, whatever it is. <laughs> it's so important. It's part of our process driving it. Yeah. And there's, the, you know, there's from another frame, those are biological phenomena that are based on evolution and maybe that fully explains it but science's explanation shouldn't take away from your sense of meaning on something because we get to choose right right i do think that at the end of the day i would be most grateful for the relationships mm -hmm. that i had the people that just ended up making me feel alive mm -hmm. yep maybe. that's definitely the most important thing i think Mm. is the people in our lives 
I just wanted to wrap up and say that I'm so grateful that I met you and got to have this conversation. I love these introductions that are so sincere, and I'm really grateful for meeting you and that you took the time to talk to me. Same. Thank you, Iman. Thank I, you so I'm much. Honored to be on your podcast, and it was really lovely. What a great way to meet someone. Yeah. A few hours talking. <laughs> Never met you before, and uh, and now uh, we get to talk. That's amazing. Mm. Following the conversation with Michael, I've thought a lot about the future of human narratives and how new technologies can be used to further enhance as well as bias our thoughts and understanding of our worlds. The impact of tech on our minds, as Michael so beautifully says it. It has also made me think of the potential of merging science, art, and technology, and how important it is to support transcendent and new approaches that can give us new tools to navigate our future in the best possible ways. I'm attaching some sources about the topics and people Michael is referring to in the recommended reading list for the interested listener. I deeply recommend the Dared My Best Friend Tour in My Life website, also listed there, to learn more about Michael's work and his new film. I hope the conversation with Michael can inspire others to learn more about the traditions and future of our storytelling and narratives, and how the development and use of technology will always be building on all parts, namely the human mind. Thank you for listening to the Chameleons podcast. I'm your host, Imak Sambrana.